I think I'd be ignorant to say that Christianity is the only right religion. I don't know what the right religion is. It's just what I believe it is. Some people that I've met, it's just, I've had friends and and the minute they find out about me or the minute that I, I do anything that doesn't follow their religion, I'm, they don't want anything to do with me. There's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad that can come out of it. And I'm not sure if it's from religion that the bad or the good comes out of it or whether it's the people. I respect a lot of faiths and I think that Christianity is the pillar that's influenced by the other great religions in the world. La cristianidad es muy importante porque podemos aprender valores cristianos donde no podemos, uh, donde descubrimos más acerca de nosotros. My view on anyone who claims to have a monopoly on truth is that there's no one truth about anything. I think that a lot of religions say the same thing in different ways. Well, hello, Christ Church. It's good to be with you this weekend for worship. My name is Jared Alcantara. Thank you to Pastor Mike and Pastor Ben and all the folks here on the staff who have welcomed me. It's a joy to be with you again. Uh, just a little uh, bit about me. Now I teach at Truett Seminary at uh, Baylor University. And I was actually in Chicago uh, last week. I was preaching at a church in the city, and someone asked me, uh, wow, Chicago twice in the same month. Uh, what is it that keeps bringing you back? And my answer was the weather. I uh, just can't get away from Chicago in February. Uh, with all that said, it's a delight to be with you. If you have your Bibles, we're in John chapter 14. That's where we'll be, John 14, verses 1 through 6. Uh, and our question this weekend is the question, is Christianity too narrow? That's a big question. That's something we need to wrestle with this morning. And so I want to take us to a text in which we're able to wrestle with it. Uh, but just by way of introduction, I thought I'd ask a different question. Have you ever asked someone a question and the answer that they gave you was very different than the one you were hoping they would give you? Uh, so, for example... Uh, transport yourself back to high school. Uh, would you like to go out on a date with me? No, let's just be friends. Uh, that's the friend zone. You don't want to be in the friend zone. Uh, or maybe you, you're getting ready to move and you say, uh, I think this, this item here is worth about $1,500. What do you think? And then the person says, well, I'll give you $500 for it. Uh, or you're uh, sitting down, you've just submitted a paper to a professor and you ask the professor, so what did you think? And your professor responds, well, of all the papers I've ever received, that was one of them. You don't want to, you don't want to hear the professor say that. Uh, if you've ever seen those music uh, singing competitions, you know, people come in, they think they're going to make the finals right away. Uh, and usually they hear one of two things. Usually it's you're not good enough or it's do anything else besides singing. Uh, we, we don't like to hear hard truths. Uh, when I was in second grade, I wanted to be an astronaut, and then someone told me the hard truth that I had to be good at mathematics. Uh, when I was in third grade, I wanted to be a seismologist, uh, someone who studies earthquakes, and then someone told me the hard truth that I had to be good at science. Uh, and then in fourth grade, I wanted to be a major league baseball player. Anyone ever wanted to be a professional athlete? Uh, someone told me then the hard truth that I had to be good at baseball in order to be a professional athlete. Uh, we don't like to hear uh, answers to the questions we ask that are different than the ones that we were hoping they would be. Uh, if we're honest with ourselves, that's also so often the case in our walk with God. Sometimes God answers the questions we ask in a way that we wish God wouldn't answer them. Uh, sometimes we get hit with the two-by-four of hard truths, uh, and we wish, we hope, that that two-by-four wasn't coming. 
we wish that God would answer questions, some of our questions differently than he answers them. Uh, which brings me to our text for this weekend, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking there, John 14, 1 through 6. And just to give you a little context, uh, Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, and Thomas asks him a very big question to which uh, Jesus gives him a very big answer. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in John chapter 14, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Hear these words from the Lord Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's a big question and that's a big answer. So we come back to it. Is, is Christianity too narrow? Uh, if you ever watch that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? This isn't the point where you can phone a friend or where you can poll the audience. Uh, I used to have a professor in graduate school who, when faced with a difficult question, liked to say, surely the answer is yes and no. Uh, it doesn't really help us that much. I think what we'll see as we wrestle through this question together uh, is not only that it's important for us to wrestle with it and not only that Jesus makes it very clear who he is and what he came to do, we'll also see if we allow ourselves that we'll be questioned by the object of our questioning, which I'll get to later. But let me talk about the context for a moment. I want you to look back at verses 1 through 4. The context is really important, and let me put it this way. Before we bring hard questions to Jesus, Jesus comforts us in our confusion. That's really important to understand. Before we bring hard questions to Jesus, Jesus comforts us in our confusion. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. That word troubled can be understood as to be distressed or to be thrown in uh, to confusion. And that's what's going on in the lives of the disciples. Uh, the disciples are distressed. They're thrown in to confusion. Why? Because this is the night before Jesus is to be crucified. In John chapter 12, Jesus explained that he was going to be killed. At the beginning of John chapter 13, he said that Judas, one of the 12 disciples, would betray him. And at the end of chapter 13, uh, Jesus said that Peter, who said in chapter 13, verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, that Peter will deny him three times. So in the midst of all of that distress, and all of that confusion, and I would say even the disappointment that Jesus probably has with his disciples, Jesus channels all of that into a word of comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says. Have your 
hearts ever been stirred up, thrown into confusion, distressed? Well, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. So even before we bring him the question, he's comforting us in our confusion. Now, for some reason, as I was reflecting on this text, I thought back to uh, a story that I heard recently uh, since I moved to Texas. It's a story about the city of San Antonio. Maybe some of you have been there. Uh, But San Antonio was a city that was prone to frequent floods. In fact, between 1845 and 1921, there were seven catastrophic floods that came through San Antonio and the San Antonio River, caused all kinds of damage to the infrastructure. The one in 1921 killed 50 people. So they had to do something. And so uh, from 1929 to 1941, they built this series of dams and canals in order to control the water level so that in the event of flooding, they would be able uh, to anticipate the damage and control the flood. It was really an architectural marvel for its time. Uh, Fast forward about 50 years to the 1990s. uh, The city had grown exponentially and uh, there were new demands. The dams and canals were getting older and uh, they they couldn't figure out ways to try to anticipate uh, what would happen in the event of like a 100-year flood or a 500-year flood. And so they decided to build these tunnels underneath the city of San Antonio. They, be, they built two tunnels in the 1990s at the cost of over $100 million. And there's a lot of resistance. Why spend all of that money when these dams and canals work just fine? Uh, but sure enough, in the year 1998, there was a 500-year flood over the span of... Uh, a couple of days in October of 1998, 16 inches of rain fell in that region. And we're a snow climate here, so uh, for every inch of rain, conservative estimates would place it at 10 inches of snow. So that's 160 inches of snow. That's over 13 feet of snow uh, just in the span of a couple of days. And so these architects headed to the center of the city to see what was happening. And to their delight, they found people walking along the river walk blissfully ignorant, people sitting in outdoor cafes, enjoying their lunch or their tea. Now why? What's because the dams and the canals and the tunnels were able to hold, even in the midst of the flood? And so I think what Jesus is saying here is in effect he's saying, I will be the dam and the canal that will hold you when you feel like your levees are breaking. I, I will be the tunnel that sees you through safely to the other side in the midst of of the flood of your confusion and distress. If your heart is stirred up, do not let your hearts be discouraged. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he goes on to say, in my father's house there are many rooms. It's this beautiful image. And when I was re-familiarizing myself with this text, I thought I I knew it well, but every time I come to it, I, I see something about it that, strikes me, that that arrests my attention. And this time, when I looked at it, I saw that Jesus keeps talking about preparing a place, preparing a place. That's the language that's used to describe servants who are preparing rooms in stately mansions. Jesus, even here, after washing the disciples' feet in chapter 13, is using the language of service to talk about what he's prepared to do for his disciples. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will go and prepare a place and I, will take, and I will come back and I will take you there to be with me. So in the midst of that distress and confusion and their hearts being stirred up, in the midst of that bewilderment and ambiguity, Jesus is offering a word of comfort here. 
a word of hope here. Uh, But if that's where the confusion ends, uh, if that's where the story ends, then we could uh, leave it at that. But that's not what happens, is it? In fact, uh, Thomas, uh, the one who is this curious questioner, the one who later on in John's gospel is the doubter, this disciple Thomas has a big question for Jesus. And so let's pick it up at verse 5. So after Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. We read the following in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Let me put it this way. When we bring hard questions to Jesus, so often it's where and how questions. Uh, That's what's going on with Thomas. Thomas is bringing where and how questions to Jesus. Jesus says, this is where I'm going. You know the way where I am going. And Thomas says, wait a second. We don't know where you are going. Where are you going? How can we know the way? That word way is so important. Jesus says, you know the way. And Thomas says, well, no, we don't know the way. How can we know the way where you are going? So often we bring Jesus our how and where questions because life is filled with ambiguities, with unanswered questions. And if we could be honest with ourselves, let me just uh, do a confession here. Uh, If you're not a believer in Jesus, let me just make this very clear that Christians have how and where questions as well to which we don't know the answers. Uh, Could God build uh, build a boulder too big for him to lift? Uh, If Adam was the first human being, then did he have a belly button? Think about that one for a moment. Uh, uh, Did Jesus ever talk over his brothers and sisters at the dinner table and get in trouble with Mary like my kids talk over each other at the dinner table? Uh, Did he ever miscut a board in Joseph's carpenter shop? We have questions too. So we know the answers to some how and where questions, but not to all of them. But I think a little bit of epistemic humility can be a good thing for everyone. Sometimes it's good to allow ourselves to not have the answers to everything. Uh, Sometimes Christians act like they have the answers to everything. Uh, So, for example, the the day of the Lord, when it will happen, how it will happen, uh, some Christians are pretty confident that they know the answer to all of those things. Uh, So they've cracked the code to the book of Revelation. They have the timelines and the charts. Perhaps you grew up in a church like that where everything was planned out. Every headline in the newspaper was predictive of what was going to take place on the last day. I find that especially curious because Jesus says this in Matthew 24, verse 36, about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. It's curious to me that there are folks who know more about it than Jesus says he does. Or take questions about heaven and hell. Uh, Scripture teaches that heaven and hell are real places, that heaven is a place of eternal peace and joy and worship before a holy God, and hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment. And Jesus says that some people go one place and other people go another place. That's not the sort of thing we like to talk about at dinner parties, is it? Uh, Besides those things, we don't know too much more about what heaven and hell are like because we are living this side of eternity. 
One day we will know. The philosopher Pierre uh, del Teilhard de Chardin, Teilhard de Chardin uh, puts it this way. He says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. In other words, everyone will live for eternity. The question is where. So often we find ways to numb ourselves or anesthetize ourselves to these bigger picture, life-altering questions, don't we? Most of us have never heard of um, a comedian who lived in the early part of the 20th century. His name was Bill Fields, or W.C. Fields, but his nickname was Bill Fields. And he did the comedy circuit and uh, was also known as this philandering, heavy drinking, partying playboy. Uh, But toward the end of his life, his mindset started to change, as it often is the case with many people. And so a friend of his, Gene Fowler, Uh, A journalist came to see him in his home in 1946, shortly before he died. He was unwell uh, at the time. And to his surprise, Gene Fowler found this person who had a reputation for being a partying playboy uh, sitting in his garden reading the Bible. So Fowler uh, said to him, Bill, uh, what are you doing? And in his classic humorous wit, Fields quipped back, I'm looking for loopholes. (laughs) So often we look for loopholes, don't we? Things that would shake us loose from Jesus' call to discipleship. Things that would shake us loose from the bigger picture questions that we have to ask ourselves about eternity. Now, Jesus does something, I think, that's quite illuminating with Thomas's question. Jesus reframes the question. And so pick it up at verse 6. Verse 6. After Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Here's the way Jesus answers him. Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus turns our how and where questions, our where and how questions, into a who question. Did you notice that? He turns our where and how questions into a who question. Let me, let me put it differently. Thomas is asking him a question about a path, as so, so often we ask that question. Jesus is saying, you don't need a path, you need a person. Uh, Thomas like us, so often is asking questions about directions for the journey. And Jesus is saying, you don't need a journey, you need a Savior. And I'm standing right in front of you. Uh, Later on, Philip says, well, uh, just uh, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand. I and the Father are one. God himself is standing right before you. You don't need a path, you need a person. And then he says, I am the way, the truth, and The life, remember that word way is important. Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way where I am going. And Thomas says, we don't know the way. And then Jesus says, well, I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. Now, so often we take our Americanized understandings of those words and we impose them on the text. So let me just extrapolate upon that a little bit. When Jesus says, I am the way, he is not so much saying, uh, I am the path among many paths or I am the road, though that word can sometimes be understood as the word road. He's saying, I am the true means. In other words, if you want to know what the Father is like, then look to me. If you want to know the ways of God's being and acting in the world, then look to me. 
If you want to know what God's love is like, then look to me hanging on a cross for your sins and for the sins of the whole world. When we were flying uh, up to Chicago from Texas, we had some, um, I would say, moderate turbulence, uh, but my wife Jen doesn't like to fly, so every tur- bit of turbulence is major turbulence. Uh, but this wonderful flight attendant, this Christian lady, uh, was so attentive to us. She brought us free snacks and uh, drinks, and, uh, and she just asked my wife questions and was there for her. And at the end of the flight, my wife Jen said to the flight attendant, you were God's grace to me on this flight. And what was she saying? She was, in effect, saying, you were the means of the grace of God to me during a time of tribulation. Jesus is saying, I I am the true means, the way by which you can understand what God is like. And if you want to know what God is like, then you can look to me, he says. And then he says, I am the truth. Uh, When he says, I am the truth, he is not so much saying, I am an abstract proposition or I am data to which you must give intellectual assent. No, he is saying, I am true reality. If you want to shake yourself free from the illusion of reality, if you want to really know what the real is like, then look to me. And so when Jesus says in John 8, the truth, uh, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he is in effect saying you will know true reality and true reality will set you free because if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So if you want to know true reality, then look to me. I like what Kevin Van Hooser says. He says, theology is about waking up to the real, what is, namely what is in Jesus Christ. And then he says, I am the life. And when he says, I am the life, he is not so much saying, I am a great teacher who will lead you toward the life, or I am a great philosopher who will lead you into life. No, he is saying, I am the true source. I am the true source of all of life. It says in John 10, verse 10, uh, that uh, Jesus says, uh, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And then we read in John three sixteen that those who believe in him will have eternal life, life abundant in the present, life eternal in the future. Jesus is the true source of it all, he says. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Not a path, but a person. Not a journey, but a savior. And so let me put it this way. If you want to find the way to life, find your way to Jesus. He is the one who is the true means. He is the one who is true reality. He is the one who is the true source of all of life. When I was younger, I read a, an essay by, by C.S. Lewis. He published it in 1945. It was called Meditations in a Tool Shed. And so he walks into this tool shed one day, and he sees a beam of light shining through the shed. And like a true academic, he started to study the beam of light and the dust particles floating through the air and the refraction through, through the, the, the break in the shed and so on. Uh, but then it hit him. What would happen if he stepped into the beam? Perhaps he would see the shed differently. So to use his own words, he said, rather than looking at the beam, I began to look along the beam. He stepped into the beam, and he noticed some amazing things. Not only did it change his understanding of the light, but it changed his understanding of the shed. And through the shed, he could actually see the leaves rustling on the trees and the blue sky off in the distance, and he could even see the sun from which the light was coming. And so he said, when I began to look along the beam... Not only did it change my understanding of the beam, it changed my, under, my perspective on the world. So often we're good at being speculative skeptics. We're good at remaining 
aloof and detached, but perhaps God is calling us not only to be observers of the light, but to step into the light. Not only to look at the beam, but to look along it, to experience it, to be changed by it so that our perspective on the world is also changed. But then after saying this sixth of the seven powerful I am statements in John's gospel, Jesus says this last part in verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. Wouldn't it have been just great if he left that last part out? It would have been so much more convenient. Uh, It would have been great if Jesus had said, in my Father's house there are many rooms, so many rooms that everyone can come, whether you accept me or reject me, it doesn't matter, whatever. Or if he had said in Matthew's gospel, uh, wide is the door and broad is the road that leads to life, and everyone who ever could possibly be on the road will be on it. Well, that's not what he says. But then, if we go that direction, if we make that move, we have to ask ourselves a different question. Did Jesus come all the way from a holy heaven to a sinning earth just to prevent us from experiencing inconvenience? Just to bring us ease and comfort? Kenda Dean, who's a theologian, she likes to say that if that is the case, then we have transformed God into our divine butler whose job it is to contribute to our ease and comfort. No, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Perhaps that feels like a hard truth. But perhaps if we will let it, what might feel like a hard truth can also be a liberating truth for each and every one of us. Because so many of us are searching for truth, we're searching for the way, we're searching for where to find life, and Jesus says, I'm the person to whom you can run. I'm the person to whom you can go. I'm reminded of the hymn writer who puts it this way, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. It requires a willingness to express our dependence, a willingness to recognize that we need a Savior, to recognize that in Jesus we find life and salvation and hope and peace, meaning and purpose. They're all in him. So if you want to find the way to life, find your way to Jesus. So is Christianity too narrow? Well, your answer depends on whether or not uh, you believe that the God who makes an exclusive claim upon our lives is also a God of grace and mercy and compassion and goodness and is worthy of the one and only life that you have. Is Christianity too narrow? Well, that depends on whether or not you believe that the same Jesus who calls us into discipleship is also the same Jesus who stretches wide his arms upon Calvary's cross to welcome every person who responds to him in faith, every person who confesses their sins and repents and says, foul I to the fountain, fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, if you want to find the way to life, you will find your way to him.
Many of us have never heard of Malcolm Muggeridge. Perhaps some of us have. He was a British journalist in the second part of the 20th century. Uh, And his life was transformed when he was doing a documentary for the BBC on the life of Mother Teresa. And here uh, he went to Calcutta and India and just saw this person who was fully devoted to Jesus and was giving her life away on behalf of a cause that was greater than herself. And it transformed him. Uh, He was uh, saved. He was transformed. He was gripped by what Thomas, Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. Toward the end of his life, uh, Muggeridge became acquaintances with Ravi Zacharias, who's a, who's a well-known uh, Christian evangelist. But in 1980, Muggeridge was looking back on his life and he was reflecting on all that had taken place over just one lifetime. And I just want to read what Muggeridge writes and then I'll add Zacharias's postscript as well. Here's what he writes. We look back on history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has spoken of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back on my own countrymen in England, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world, most of them convinced of the popular song, The God Who Made Them Mighty Shall Make Them Mightier Yet. I have heard a crazed Austrian announce to the world the rise of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I have seen an Italian clown say he was going to stop and start the calendar with his ascension to power. I have heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, more enlightened than Ashoka. I have seen America wealthier and more militarily powerful than the rest of the world put together, so that had the American people so desired they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and the scale of their conquest, all in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. England, a tiny island in the Atlantic, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime, he helped found and dominate for three decades. America, haunted by fears of those precious fluids that keep her motorways running and smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victory of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone. Gone with the wind. And then Zacharias adds this postscript. Behind the debris of our self-styled solemn supermen, there stands the gigantic figure of one person, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind may still have hope, the person of Jesus Christ. You see, I didn't come all the way from Texas to tell you about a path. And I didn't come to tell you about a journey. I came to tell you about a person. I came to tell you about a Savior. And that Savior is the one by whom, through whom, in whom, and because of whom humankind still has hope. So if you want to find the way to life, find your way to him. Let's pray. Lord, so often it's difficult for us to hear hard truths Sometimes hard truths can be very good for us, liberating even, when we get clear on what matters, 
when we no longer uh, throw our lives away on stuff that doesn't matter and won't last. Lord, we confess that we do not want to come to the end of our lives and look back and feel like we were self-serving, self-centered folks who didn't care about the things that truly last. So God, would you help us in our weakness? Would you help us if we're walking along with you but stalled right now? Would you reignite our passion for you? And for those who do not know you, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you remove the obstacles, the things that would keep them from coming to Jesus and to his cross? Lord, would you also help us to be people who say that you are worthy of our one and only life, to to be people who find our way to you because you, in Christ, have already found your way to us. For we pray it in his name. Amen.